coming at you from Scratch Wolf Studios. That time again to rage across the internet. Your very favorite Werewolf the Apocalypse podcast. I'm your host, Porter. To my left, two-time Bejeweled champion, Mr. Daniel Tyson. Hey, everybody. And across from me, the elder in Elden Ring, Tommy Dixon. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> How we doing, gentlemen? Doing great. That game is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, oh, oh, that one. Yeah, Got it. that yeah. one. Yikes. <laughs> Oh, come on. This is how we always start a show. Yes, it is, but I'm going to pretend to be shocked and offended this time. Oh, okay. And luckily, I don't have to do that alone. No. Because today, we have a special guest with us from Weaponized Inc., Mr. Brandon Stewart. Brandon, how's it going, buddy? Doing good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to have you. In fact, it's a long time coming. Yeah. We love Savage Age around here, so... Uh, We've vaguely heard of it, yeah. Vaguely. (laughs) No, funny enough, I like it, too. Well, that's, that's fortunate, I think, for everyone. Yeah, I think this will work. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good addition, then, huh? It's going to fit in well. <laughs> hey, look out, Grant and Kaysen. Right? <laughs> <laughs> He's bidding on those knives next. <laughs> Here comes a new challenger. <laughs> <laughs> now, I understand if I come on enough, there's a free toaster. There, there is a toaster. And or steak knives. And or steak oh. knives. Depending okay. on. Good to know. <laughs> I'll make sure you like me. I'm, I'm not trying to put jelly on soft bread. So, this sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> now, those steak knives may or may not be plastic. But they, like will, surprises. they will come with a straw. Oh! oh. I'll put Fancy. ante on that one. Right? <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> I want to be in this running. I want a new straw. Well, the real question is, are you in a band? Not yet. <laughs> oh, there's a callback. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where straws from, Tom. So we've lost contact with Danny, but uh, the rest of us, we could put a show on today. <laughs> sure, you can still do it without me anyway. No. No? No. Thank you. I appreciate that. Wait, I'm waiting for the punchline here. But there's no punchline. He died. No, oh. that one lived. Oh, that Hey-o. one did live. Because oh, that's a great newisha name. Yes, it is. <laughs> Anyway, we're not here about Nuisha. No, we're not. We did that already. We did. Yeah. Well, that's right. I forgot about that one. <laughs> Today, we are here to talk about the Urkama. Yes. Brandon, what is an Urkama? We're bats. That's what? the whole pitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> good night, everybody. All that's right. all you need to know. <laughs> just, just show the pretty Paul Way artwork, say we're bats, and then, then it takes care of itself. Um, the Urkama are the Savage Age era ancestors to the Kamazots, and they are the Werebats. Their role was essentially to be the, the bulwark between Gaia and the really awful stuff on the other side of the Umbra. Like they, they were the, the line of defense between us and the eldritch horrors that are in the, the darkest part on the other side of the goblin. Well, you know, when I think of something that, that's going to stop those those terrible, nasty things in the dark, the first thing I think of is a bat. Man. So... <laughs> you know, there might be something to that. I, I, could, I could see people digging that. How dare I? Make that <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've watched that movie. <laughs> how, how dare I? <laughs> So no, um, it, it, as Tom uh, mentioned in there, is uh, I think that's that's why I think we picked our comma today. Is that <laughs> amazing Paul Way art? 
<laughs> for that cover. Oh, seriously? Yeah, so far. That, that is my favorite piece of his. And mind you, he did the character arc for us for the podcast. <laughs> I like that better. Wow. That, I, that's probably my favorite cover, too. Like for, for the longest time, my favorite was probably Broken Brother, but I'm incredibly biased because I wrote that book. Oh, so of course. That, that was... That was just really cool for me, getting to you know see Paul bring to life an idea that I had, and you know make it way better than what was in my head. But Urkama, just such a good cover, and probably the least busy of all of our covers too. But it seems to be the one everyone likes the most, and I get it. Uh, it is. It's very striking, you know, the the color contrast and I mean the art in general. Yes, and yeah, it's a beautiful cover. It's thanks, Paul. Thanks for giving us that artwork. Little okay. shout out. We appreciate you. Right. So. Was that like your idea, Brandon, that you got to let Paul know what you were thinking and he brings it to life? Not on Urkama. The, um, the bulk of Urkama was uh, done by uh, Andy Howell. Okay. Who, uh, I, I don't know how much you guys have discussed him at all or if all on other episodes, but he, uh, he's been with Weaponized Inc. since the beginning and has been involved in pretty much all of our books to one extent or another, but he's... Uh, he predates me, and the bulk of our comma was his, and I don't know if the cover was his concept or Chris's. Um, for Broken Brother, I handle, um, all the art was things that I had pitched to Chris and Paul, and then Paul did the magic ink-slinging thing that he does and spun straw into gold. <laughs> That's a nice <laughs> way of putting it, yeah. That really is. It, it is. It's super impressive work. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, the art... In Savage Age. I mean, it, it is it's extremely impressive. Paul's a very talented man, and I think it's definitely striking. It helps bring attention to the great work you guys are doing on the insides of the, the book. I was going to say, the, the, the stuff on the inside is pretty cool, too. Right, see, I was segueing. I was making that happen. <laughs> it's pretty on the outside and the inside. There we go. <laughs> to expound on the calling them the, the bulwark between us and the, the deep umbral nasties, I... For anybody that's a mage fan, I, I sometimes liken them in function to the the void engineers from the technocracy. Their job is they know that there are awful things out there, and not only are they going to deal with them, they hopefully don't want anyone else to know that those things exist. We, we handle this. This is our mandate. You 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 don't worry about, which well, comes with its own set of problems. It, it most assuredly does. Uh, we were we were talking, and we will get there as we continue the, the, the discussion here, but I, I was talking to Tom in particular uh, earlier today about how most of, and I want to say like a good 80-90% of the troubles, the Arkhamas troubles, was kind of their own fault. Oh, yeah. Big time. A little self-inflicted on that, on that yeah. neutral aspect. Their, their, their decision-making skills and the way they do business kind of bit them in the ass like every step of the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like a, a good lead-in for pretty much anything set during the War of Rage is so mistakes were made. <laughs> right? <laughs> Understatement? Sure. Yeah, you know, and I got to say this too. Um, I mean, it's not directly related to Durakama, but something I love about the Savage Age is that it, it doesn't focus the blame on one thing. You know, I've, I've seen this trend more and more lately with, uh, with the apocalypse stuff to where it's, you know, the War of Rage was just the Garu's fault. It was only them and exclusively them, and they did every bad thing, and everyone else did nothing wrong at all, and they're just big, mean bullies. 
That's because everyone blames them because they win. Right, and it's like <laughs> nothing is ever that simple, and I love that Savage Age understands that. He goes, no, it's not one thing. It, it's not... <laughs> it's definitely a combination of all. Yeah. I wrote the uh, all the Nightmare God stuff, which sure we'll get to in a bit. Oh, yeah. And as I was writing that, I was like, how is this everyone's fault? I feel like this is everyone's fault. How can we make? How can we convey this? <laughs> <laughs> like there's enough that. blame for everyone. Right, and I, and I like how you uh, went around it. And again, there's there's that level of the Urkama dug their own graves here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you really pick were, a side next. Time. You were kind of asking for it. You just you just could have said a thing. And she's like, by the way, we're out of milk. <laughs> just. <laughs> Well, I, I think there's a, especially when you start looking at the, like the guy in mandates, I think one of the things that keeps popping up is the, just this hubris with all the different tribes. Everyone gets their mandate and rather than thinking of it as this is a responsibility that needs doing, a lot of them look at it as, well, clearly we are the best at this and no one else is deserving of input. Therefore, we're the only authority on it, and we should make the decisions alone. And you can look at pretty much any given Farah to see how that just bites them in the ass. Oh, no, it totally works out. <laughs> every time. Every, every time. Every, every single time. That's why um, the Urkama is the most popular tribe in, in, in the Garo Nation in Apocalypse. <laughs> That's why. Because <laughs> oh, everything know. worked out fine. <laughs> and everyone is friends. Or comma, the apocalypse. Got it. <laughs> so, I guess, I guess we should probably start at the start with the Urkama. It is that it's important to note that in the Savage Age, the Urkama were aligned with the Worm of Balance, mm-hmm. and that everybody seems to forget. And, and I think of something that was neat is when uh, when that change happened, when the Worm fell. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we talk every now and then about. Gaia versus the Triad, which came first, and you, know, mm-hmm. you look at different sources, and fine. Depending but, on who's saying it right. Right. And, and this is one of these examples, because you know, I've, been, I've always been a big proponent of the Triad created Gaia, and not the other way around. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is the thing here, because you know, the worm does its thing, it starts to fall, and immediately bad goes to snitch. Mm-hmm. Immediately bad warns Gaia. And this is the difference, is if Gaia created the Triad, that is snitching. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and theoretically, because Gaia created the triad, that should have been the end of it. You know, she, she should have been, all right, Worm, you're done. Worm Jr., you're up. You know? In theory, well, I see. Yeah, no, I see where you're going. she's strong enough to make them, she can unmake them. It's like children, right? They would be her children. Now, I was a child once. Mm-hmm. Right? And I was small. Right? And weak and ineffectual. And before I was a child, I was a baby. And babies can't do anything. So, like, you can just get rid of a baby. It can't stop you. There's no revenge. There's no repercussion. It's just got to sit there and take it. How and many times kind of, did your mother say, I, can, I brought you in this world. I can take you back this out. This is exactly my point. Mm-hmm. This is exactly my point. So, guys, one of those taglines, you know, there's when will you rage? And that now it's, guy, I could have taken that baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, like, if, if Gaia created the triad and Bat came to snitch, Worm just throw or uh, Gaia just throws Worm Baby in the dumpster and makes a new one. However, <laughs> that's not how this works out. If, no. if the triad is is higher up on the on the food chain, 
that is warning Gaia. I can see it more that way. Yes. And, and, and in that, what did Gaia do is she gave Bad a new mandate. Yeah. So like, hey, thanks for helping out is a reward. Here's a new gig. Mm-hmm. Which is what happened. But see, I think that, that leads more toward the triad over Gaia. And that's, I mean, that's just me talking, but there it is. I mean, it's, this is all Brandon's idea yet, so what do you think, Brandon? I've always uh, thought of it as the triad being over Gaia. Particularly since, um, you know, with Gaia, so much of the game centers around how much danger she's in and how screwed she is, whereas with the triad, the worm doesn't go away. Maybe you can push back against it, or even even during the Savage Age when the Weaver is probably in the worst spot it's been in for quite a long time. It's not gone. It's not in danger of going away. It's just, it's on the ouch. To me, Gaia was always presented as much more vulnerable, so I tend to think of the, the triad as being at the, at the top. It, you know what? It, thank you. Exactly yeah. that. Gaia is like Mr. Magoo walking through the construction site. It's like, you know, anything at any moment is going <laughs> to take her out. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow he just... Happenstance gets perfectly safe every single time. Well, we don't have a game if she gets hit with a wrecking ball. (laughs) (laughs) Except that wrecking ball missed and hit Weaver and blamed it on Worm. (laughs) So, Paul, I need you to draw Gaia as Mr. Magoo. (laughs) Mm. Cover the next book. The nice thing about Paul is, you know, (laughs) I I can just, the explanation can just be because it'll be funny. Okay. And then he'll try it, and it'll look like gold. Make sure that Mr. Magoo's not too six. Sometimes we have to we have to rein well, in on that. That's a problem that happened frequently in those old cartoons. <laughs> yes, it's those specs, man. It's, it's those specs, and that's recorded. It is going to be on the show. Yep, sure is now. <laughs> Don't you dare take that out. This is yet another pharaoh, though, that keeps secrets. Yes. It's Big thing about Gaia having things keep her secrets. Well, you know, I, I want to give credit there to the Urkama because, you know, they kind of learned that through their time with the Balance Worm to take things in a more uh, more measured approach. A more measured approach, thank you. See, information, observation, and insight, the three Bs. That was big with the Urkama. I had a lot of fun uh, drawing lines between them and the Lewa since there's a lot of overlap in the mandate as far as being the, the secret keepers, because in both cases that mandate kind of screws or their interpretation of that mandate kind of screws them over, but in very different ways with the Walewa, it's a very expansionistic, you know, we're the only ones qualified to regulate these secrets and not you guys. So we should be your Kings. Whereas with the Arkama, it's we're the only ones qualified to deal with these secrets so we're not going to tell you what we're up to, why, or what we're doing. Well, and I think to add to that, I think part of that too with, and I'm, I'm going to look at the best ad in general because I yeah. pick on the best ad a little bit. Just a little. A little bit. You know, it's, it's I always made the joke that the best ad, and I mean, we're predominantly looking at Apocalypse, right? we're fired. <laughs> <laughs> be, because it was like, go out, cats, and be my, learn my secrets, learn the secrets. And then she's like, okay, guys, what do you learn? And they go, it's a secret. <laughs> and she's like, haha, like, no, but it's a secret. We can't tell you. So they got fired, and that's why we got Korax and Kamazots. <laughs> <laughs> Still my favorite bit. 
right? Like, you can't shut the Korax up. That was by design. <laughs> um, but no, with the, the Okama, I, I think the thing is, too, is that we're keeping these secrets, and, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you know better than I. Is that we're keeping these secrets because, like, if you knew half of this, you would go crazy and possibly infect Gaia. Mm-hmm. You don't want to know what goes bump in the night in the deep umbra. Right, like, you you can't handle that shit. <laughs> and, and you are, like, a werewolf. <laughs> That's kind of how I was reading it, too. That's very much how I was reading it. Like, yeah, we learned all these things. But no one should really know because this is not good. Right, like, we can handle this because we're made for this. <laughs> you need to not know what's out there. And just, we're not even going to ask you to trust us. We're just going to pretend there's nothing to tell. Yeah. That, that was one of the um, reasons that I I did a few of the gifts and the rights in the book. And up to this point, I don't think we had had anything in Savage Age that hardened the gauntlet because one of the hooks of our setting is that the gauntlet is very thin, very malleable in this stage. But I was thinking, you know, you've got these secret keepers that are charged with guarding the door shouldn't they have a means of closing or locking or otherwise fortifying that door? And that's, that's super smart. Yeah, and that's something that I really I want to you know we're going to touch down when we get to the um, the stuff out there in the dark. But I, I absolutely love that idea, that, that closing the cage, if you will. And I thought it worked out well because once the Urkama kind of go by the wayside, at least for now, you, you don't really see that gift pop back up because it's really more of a weaver gift than... Right now, the weaver is on the outs. So I like the idea that you know this was a a thing that they could do. But once they once they get Garud, maybe you don't see that again for a while. Once they, once they get, get Garud, I like that. Something. <laughs> that's a verb now. <laughs> that's yep. That's a verb. All right. <laughs> you have added to our, our podcast lexicon now. That is a real thing. Go on, get Garud. <laughs> get Garud. Thank you, Brandon. Right. But, but, but yeah, the, the Urkama were charged after that with guarding... Gatekeeping. Yeah, we're, we're, we're protecting against the really scary, unfathomable shit in the Deep Umbra. I mean, they were good at it, but it keeps you very umbral-centric. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's, that's where they're learning those secrets. It's, oh, well, if this is our job, we, we better not let it out, or any of these secrets, for that matter. No, I, I very much saw it that way, that... We can handle this. Nobody else will. Well, I think in a, a lot of the Farah didn't even understand. And of course, that went both ways too, because you know the Arkama weren't very, aren't very, weren't very, aren't. Is that what we do in pastors? Doesn't matter. <laughs> We're gonna switch tenses like crazy. It doesn't matter. There's no continuity here. Welcome to the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is thousands of years ago. Yeah, time's already <laughs> all over the place. So. <laughs> right, time's irrelevant. Yes, yeah, so whenever you say your game, it's crazy. Exactly. But yeah, um, it kind of worked both ways because the Urkama generally weren't um, interested in what was going on in the realm. They, they were generally pretty aloof. You know, I mean, they, they'd send people, they'd send their young out there to check things out, to, to learn the ways, certainly, because, look, I, yeah. it, it is important, but not as important as the work they're doing in the dark. Mm-hmm. Mm. But that is kind of where things start to go south for I was going to say, that's, that's where it starts to get bitten in the ass. Because there's a little yeah, thing called the War of Rage. Yeah. They kind of wind up becoming the that meme of the of the dog in the house that's burning down who says this is fine. A little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. because, Everything's fine. What, because one of the things we, we talked about that ultimately leads to 
them being exterminated or near exterminated, depending on if you want to use them in modern acts or not, is, you know, they're one of the last ones that the Garu take out. And in the preceding time, there's probably a lot of Farah coming to them going, hey, help, we need help, the werewolves are coming. And their attitude was, well, no, that's not our problem. You guys have to handle that. We, we've got to look on the other side of the door. And by the time the wolves come, by the time the wolves are at the door, literally speaking, there's no one for the Urkama to get help from because they already told everyone else no. Yeah, they weren't trusted anymore. No, no. They, there's, a re, there's several reasons for that over time. But, I mean, I think it's important that there were, there were some. You know, they, they did work, at least the, the Gaia-bound contingent of the Urkama. Mm-hmm. Did end up doing work as, like, uh, spy masters occasionally. There were some that were information brokers. Yep. And which, which, by the way, very, was very reminiscent to me of the Shadow Lords. Yep, which I think yep. is fitting, considering the connection with the second War of Rage. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ah, I see where you're going. Okay. You know, I didn't put two and two together. But yeah, I mean, they mean you're right. They didn't play a large role, but what they did, they did kind of play both sides. Oh, which is much. historically a fucking brilliant idea. But playing that middleman allowed them to dodge the War of Rage for the first good portion of it. Like they weren't bothered. I mean, that's true, and I, and I think it was funny there as I read that they actually some of the Urkama supported the formation of the Garu Nation at first, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which again, <laughs> bad decision. In retrospect, well, yeah, but I mean that's the thing is you know as we we talk about and we all know is that the War of Rage wasn't one thing. It wasn't ten years of a conflict. This mm-hmm. this this lasted. Right. Mm-hmm. This is multi generational. The War of Rage did not end in a fortnight. Too easy. Right. So there was uh, and really what I mean is there was a lot of time to screw things up. <laughs> Just a perfect amount for things to go south. Well, I mean, there was a lot of uh, bouncing back and forth, and maybe I interpreted I, I, I interpreted this wrong, but I felt that, like there was a lot of back and forth in the timeline of things. Mm-hmm. Reading through the book, yeah, like we talk about the Nightmare Gods, and that's awesome. And then it's like, oh, well, also here's this, and then oh, well, here's the blight, and this is how this was handled. But like, aren't you all dead at this point? <laughs> Time continuity. It's a strange thing, I guess. <laughs> And because of that, there's, again, it's a lot of, you see a lot of the different instances of those, those kind of oops moments. Those we maybe handled that poorly moments. Trying to get um, leverage, I think, was, uh, depending on who they were getting leverage from, was one of those things where it just bit him in the ass too many times over. Mm. It was very reminiscent of the Shadow Words for me. <laughs> I, I can see why, yeah. They, they were mistrusted from Jump Street. Especially affiliated with the worm, and as you know, the, the time passes, mm-hmm. you know, so many of the others out there forget that no, they were affiliated with the balance worm, with the before mm. things went south. They just hear worm, right? They hear worm, and they go, ah, "You're no, <laughs> that's a no for you." Yeah, because they turn, they turn to uh, War of Totems, trying to tell them, "Hey, we're not bad guys." And the totems were like, "No, you serve the worm. Our yeah. memories are deep." Right? <laughs> Fenris is like, "No, I don't, I don't think so." No, but we promise we're. I don't. I don't see it. <laughs> One of the things I, I enjoy putting in the books, I always like doing the. You know, you know, sometimes we'll have the little blurbs heading off a section where it's a like an in character quote from 
someone that lives in a universe that's usually relevant to whatever text is about to follow. I like doing those because like you were talking about, this isn't a 10-year conflict. It's an indeterminate but very long amount of time. And you're going to have, even along travel lines, different characters that feel different ways about things. There will be those or comma that support the Garu nation. There will be those that are vehemently opposed and there'll be those that are indifferent because, well, they're too busy watching the door. Right. And I, I like opportunities like that to give examples of what might one of these characters be like? What might one of their opinions be? How do they feel about stuff? So that you have those, you know, if you want to play a character, hey, here's how one might behave. But also, here's an example of one might be like. For me as a player, I like stuff like that because it gives me kind of a jump start to go, okay, okay, I think I, I have an idea for what kind of person this might be. No, and I, and I love that you brought that up. Because, I mean, while it's unrelated to Savage Age, something that um, we hear a lot on our Discord, hmm. which, by the way, you can get the link to from RageCrossInternet.com. Dot com. Mm-hmm. Close enough. Um, is is will be questions, you know, especially from newer players, people learning werewolf will be, you know, like, well, how would a Fianna react to this, or how would a Black Fury or a Geta Fenris react to this? And and we just like, did but, the episode, but but sure, but it's you know, it's like, well, there's not a single answer to that because it's, it's not a it's not a hive mind, mm-hmm. and so the fact that you know, like you're talking with Arkama, how you you see those different aspects, those different those different views, those different ways to go. I think it's a great thing, and it's it's important to showcase that, yeah, the Urkama weren't a hive mind. The Weliwa, not a hive mind. The Stone Eaters, not a hive mind. People have different opinions. People are different. And you can see how that also ends up screwing them. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, they were very much... They didn't have the hive mind as far as the thought process, but like they were very much a swarm, a community, if you want to call it that. Well, sure, but I mean, we we look at you know the the three of us around this table. Mm-hmm. We agree on a lot of things. We don't agree on everything. No, I a uh, b- bit of a digression, but it's uh, it, that. I'm going to justify it because it's putting over Andy and really Urkama is is his book um, on the subject of different character voices in Broken Brother, which was the uh, deluxe jump start we did. The big goal I have with that was to give people as many examples of what play might look like, whether it's, you know, character examples, plot examples, because a lot of times, at least for me, there will be games that, you know, you read the book and it's a really fun read. It's a cool setting, but you get done and you go, what does playing this look like? Like This was a fun read and it sounds cool, but I don't know how this translates into practice. So with Broken Brother, I was trying to, check some of those boxes. And one of the things we did at uh, Chris's suggestion was to have pre-made sample player characters so that you pick it up, you can just grab one of those. They're already made. You hop right in. Well, funny because Andy is probably the team member that I've conversed with the least, yet we keep popping up in each other's books because Chris had me do stuff on our combo, but the uh, on Broken Brother, I had, I'd sent the text off to him and he gets it assembled and sends it back to me to look over before we go live. And so this is the first time I'm seeing it in, in layout, you know, all put together and pretty. And I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I'm usually less critical of the stuff that I don't remember writing quite as much because then I have some distance between it and I can be like, Oh, that's good. That's good. Nice. nice. And I'm 
you know, going back through the book, looking for capos and stuff, and I'm rereading the sample PCs that I wrote. And at this point, uh, Chris has not told me that, um, or I haven't gotten his message that Andy has contributed a player character rather. So I'm going back through these, checking for tapos, and then I get to this uh, really awesome entry for this character called Sings of Wars to Come. And I don't entirely remember writing you. It's good, though. <laughs> It's <laughs> really good. So there was a moment of, and I was like, what was that? Because, I mean, there's some parts, you know, I mean, it had been a while since I had seen some of this text. So there's some parts I remembered better than others. I was like, man, this is really good. What was I sleepy? Is, is sleepy <laughs> Brandon like awesome? And then eventually I was like, no, there, there's no M dashes. There's no overlong compound sentences. You can't be mine. So finally, <laughs> I know what I am. <laughs> and, uh, so finally, I, I, I see Chris's message. I'm like, oh, okay, Andy added, an, added a character. So, yeah, my, my, one of my favorite parts about my book is the thing I didn't write. <laughs> and nice. I sincerely hope that Andy likes my uh, humble little contributions to his book. So now, now we're even. So there you go. Fair. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome, though. Well, you know, and, uh, as you mentioned, the, the Nightmare God stuff, it's definitely a worthy contribution. That, that's been a lot of fun. The Nightmare Gods were, that was, uh, that was my pitch originally. That was my baby. But a lot, a lot of members of the team have latched onto that and have some really cool ideas for it going forward. So I'm excited for what we're going to have for you guys regarding them. Do we, do we want to talk about them in more detail now or wait till further along? I think, I think let's get through more of the War of Rage first. Because right, cool. I think there's a there's a decent amount of moving parts there, yeah, and um, you know, a lot to go wrong that absolutely did. Yes, <laughs> like like how they were holding on to a lot of fetishes that were unknown. Yeah, <laughs> like that because they got them from the debunker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, closer to the end, if I recall. And that's, that was um, yeah, that was their undoing, kind of one of their I many was say there was undoing many doings. doings but... <laughs> well, yeah, and then part of that was you know again playing both sides. The de- and it was really the decision to help who they felt needed the help. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't who they a, felt needed. It wasn't necessarily a bad goal. Just everyone's at war here. Let's see, not yeah, hundred percent thought out. Right, everyone's at war. We're not picking a side. So maybe we'll help you. <laughs> maybe not. And again, their general aloofness just appeared to everyone else like they didn't give a shit. Now, if it's suddenly if you're not with us, you're against us. You know, there's aspects of that. Then you look at um, the secrets aspect. So, you know, like you, the best that would look at them and go, so, uh, you know, hey, you're, you're into secrets, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey. You know, you get the weather one. They look at the, the your comment and go, so you're into caves, huh? <laughs> <laughs> look at all you got in common. And, of course, the gal were making that connection, too, going, hey, hey. So you're into caves, huh? <laughs> you're into secrets? <laughs> You know, it's too bad this was set in such an early time period because if someone just got them a ring doorbell, they could have been fine. <laughs> Would it be sponsored now? Are we sponsored now? Oh my god! Oh, hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> oh damn it! Just <laughs> taking some of them from watching the door. <laughs> just let the doorbell do it. Well, right, you know, and I mean, and the, the funny thing is, is this is going on, and you had your or come out elders who, you know, again, predominantly are over in the deep umber taking care of the, like the important shit. Yeah, the strongest, really. Right, you know, it's like you, you you let the kids come over here and some of them stay because they're having fun playing information. But, you know, the the real power, it's still back in the Umbra. 
But they thought their little their their network, you know, their little secrets network, their shadow network of information, informants, and all that would protect them. But it's like, is this your first day? <laughs> <laughs> no one thought that through. No. And yeah, you, you talk about like time, like you talk about when they when people start finding these caches of fetishes. Well, now it's two problems. Yeah, because they yeah. weren't supposed to be out, so secrets are getting out. Right, you know, it's like yeah, now and now the Urkama are now a source of these weapons that yeah. maybe they're hoarding for the other side. Because you know they were weird weapons to them because they were weird fetishes because they're unknown origin. Right. So it's like, what? Who are they working with? What is this? And who's making those? It's a good question, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> You can find out at storytellersvault.com where we have over 10 books. <laughs> That's a well good done. plug. Right? Well done. It just kind of reminds me one of the uh, the opening stories. So it was the one of the elders was teaching the new members of the swarm mm-hmm. and pulls out a fetish and gets all of their attention. And none of them realize that she's slowly backing up towards the edge of what we'll just call this clay or this cave. It was a cliff. Mm. And yeah, it was in the cave that was really dark and no one can really see past a certain point. So if she takes a step back, she's a goner, but she's got this fetish out. They're all getting closer and closer. And until she puts it away and now the rest of that swarm starting to see, Oh shit, <laughs> we could have just died. It was all because of the focus they had on that fetish. And it was more of a lesson to maybe not so focus on one thing, but broaden the horizons kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed the, the stories in this one because this is, for me, it's one of the first times I've really gotten what I feel like is a, a feel for how Andy writes and what his voice sounds like because... You know, when you look at a completed volume, you don't necessarily know, you know, who wrote what. And ideally, you want a book to feel somewhat cohesive. So it's not, it's not always going to be apparent that, oh, that's a Chris Gunning paragraph. That's an Andy paragraph. So getting to see him flex his muscles on this and tell his stories was, for me, that was really cool. Oh, honestly, that's one of the, at least... I'm imagining Porter too, but it's one of the big things we like about Savage Age so much is how all of you together can make the one cohesive stories. Definitely. It just amounts to the talent that's there. Yeah. Just going to make the most of this time period where anything could happen in the way you guys have brought it all together and even the nature of the stories, something mm-hmm. I appreciate them. And I, I hate to say this because it, it feels like I'm talking shit on someone else and that's not where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. But, but I like, there, there's a level of brevity in these stories where you, you, you guys aren't wasting our time. Sometimes I'd read some Legends of the Gar, I'm not even going to name any, so just some of them, to where it's like, mm. this has gone on for an hour and a half longer than it needed to. <laughs> That's so true. I mean, I'm, I'm always entranced with the Savage Age stories, and they're easy, quick reads. And yeah, they get straight to the point. Yeah, they're interesting, and they're to the point. Yep. And, yeah. and they help the other points all stay together and be one cohesive thing. Mm-hmm. We've been really fortunate in that regard because for my part, they don't really, I'm not being line edited in the sense of, Hey, you need to reword this wording. So it sounds more like so-and-so or that we just kind of all click. 
without really discussing it, everybody's been pretty good about being on the same page and things just kind of flow together. Well, you don't necessarily have to go through the extra arduous process of, like you were saying, it doesn't feel disjointed once all our stuff is put together. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. That makes the process very smooth and a lot of fun. You know, I've, I've got to agree with that. Cause, I mean, speaking, I mean, we we're not putting a game together, but we do put the show together. You can really tell the difference between like, you know, how Tom and I gel and then we've got this third wheel here to fucking get in our way. <laughs> so, you know, I definitely see the merit, you know, of having that team that just comes together like that. And it's, it's very natural. I, I think it's, uh, it's doubly fortunate because, you know, so, sometimes the, the motivation for uh, some of these stories is spat. And <laughs> what, what, I, okay, what, what, what I mean by that, and I'm, I love you, boss. Um, <laughs> there are certain, you know, every, everyone on their team has their own uh, preferences and things that they like or dislike, obviously. And Chris makes no secret that things like the, the Corex or like the um, Ananasi are not his favorite things. They're not what he thinks of. He is not a fan. <laughs> yeah, he, he is not. Well, the first gig I was on, uh, I came in on Volume 3, Tools of Extinction, and, well, because I saw Paul Way's art, thought it was pretty, and said, ooh, what's this? And then found <laughs> out they had some opening. But um, I had not really knowing what he wanted. He just I told him I could do short stories, and he said, okay, well, send me something. So with no further conversation or really insight into what he liked, I just... I did a couple of short ones just as like a sampler of, hey, here's some different stuff I can do. And he told me that part of the reason he liked bringing me on board was that I managed to, according to him, tell a story with some of his least favorite changing breeds, and he liked them. Now, the way I should have interpreted that was, okay, well, I got lucky, and here's the ones to avoid. But the way I read that was, oh, so now my challenge is to consistently tell the best crow and spider stories ever. Got it. <laughs> I like where your head's at on that, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if I now. can tell a story so good that you'll put it in even though its existence makes you angry, then I am a good employee. And as long as I don't unpack that, that makes sense. That is job security, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I say you run with that. It's like, you know, I'm going to make you like the Corex. <laughs> I'm going to write this so hard, you're going to get a Corex tattoo. <laughs> wow. We don't know that he doesn't have one. I'm just asking questions, boss. Just, just asking questions. Anyway. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Everybody likes Gaia's free pass. Come on. That's true. And actually, I think this is a little bit a little bit of how they became guys free pass is in Urkama. The, the Corex, and I guess I, I don't know if they were the Corex or the Rapax at that point. I'm just going to say Corex. Yeah. Just come on. Yeah, <laughs> I remember reading this. Yeah, in the Urkama, we're, we're kind of pals. And so mm. it kind of got the Corex in, in with the Garu Nation who just sided with them. <laughs> Who's just like, no, we're going to back this horse. This is going to, they're going to win this. We're here. Oh, okay. And, and it kind of got in the way of the, the Urkama, but it lowered their value at that point. Because, well, now we have these spies. Yeah, and and we can trust them more because they won't shut up. And, and we know you're hiding shit. And they weren't associated with Worm. One of the things I enjoy about the Corex is, yes, they never stop talking, but they also never stop listening. So when these other... 
when these other pharaohs are getting eliminated, I feel like they're very good at going, okay, we're going to do that different. <laughs> right. let's, let's, let's not do that. Someone learned from others' mistakes. But, but they kind of they slipped in and started stepping on the Urkama's feet there, mm-hmm. despite the fact that that's how they got the in. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't for Urkama leading them to them. Right? Like, this is job security. I don't know why you're playing both sides. We are... <laughs> And lo and behold, they have never done anything wrong ever and have gotten away with everything for all time. So, I didn't write it. That's just how the Corex are. Well, they are the youngest ferret, too. So, I mean, they got that little brother. Kitsune. The second youngest. <laughs> also, uh, just uh, another plug for uh, Andy. Speaking of uh, Rapex, uh, that book is coming, and you'll get to see uh, his take on them, and I, I think people are really going to dig it. That's something I'm definitely curious about, that one. Because uh, it's, it's my understanding, and I don't know this, mm-hmm. but it's my understanding that, you know, the, the Rapex are, are going to be very different from the Corax. Mm-hmm. And how we get from point A to point B, I'm very interested in. I mean, I can see why. You were saying they're completely different. So I would hope that the transition, I guess I'm going to call it that. Yeah. Well, because, well, I mean, they're, they're aggressively not ravens when it starts. Mm-hmm. So to get from, I mean, I guess you, you track the evolution at that point. But how you have that, that shifter race that goes along that evolutionary roller coaster. Hmm. Where largely, it's just a drastic change. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so speaking of the change, Brandon, walk me through from Urkama into Kamazots. Well, one of the... Uh goals with Urkama was to get to play with the wear bad idea, but not necessarily have it be so, I guess for lack of a better term, region specific. The Kamazots are, uh, they tend to be, you know, at, as per the name, you see them in particular areas of the world, South America, things of that nature. And we wanted the Urkama to be something that you could find feasibly anywhere that there's bats. One of the nice things about having folks on the team with all these backgrounds and anthropology and stuff is they can put that together in a way that feels cohesive and real. I am not that guy, but I can, I can make stuff up. But, um, <laughs> that's fair. The, the Camazots are essentially the survivors. They are what remains after the Urkama fall into the war of rage and, well, their own poor decision making. <laughs> I like that part. Their own poor decision-making. Well, I mean, it's, it's very much true. Mm-hmm. We're, we're harping pretty heavily on, you know, their poor decisions because, dear God, were they? But, I mean, that's, that's kind of universal across the Pharaoh. There's Even with the Corex, there's not really a Pharaoh where you can say, and they did everything right and had no regrets. But <laughs> I think with the Urkama, it's, it's particularly tragic because they were such badasses. They were these extremely capable spies and warriors and in many cases assassins. And, and that's one of the fun things that I think they bring to the table is you could use them to kind of tell that these are two words that may not normally go together, a prehistoric espionage kind of game. Hmm. That's, that's my favorite genre. I don't know. It's a little oversaturated, but I, I think there's still things you can do with it. You know, I think we've all seen the Flintstones double O granite. So, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh wow! I was not ready for that reference. Um, so, 
Folks, look out for A Man Called Urkama. It's going to be great <laughs> stuff, and thanks to the five of you that got that reference. We appreciate it. <laughs> to let the Urkama off the hook for a little bit for a minute. Just and really, for a minute. <laughs> and really, we're not... Everyone fucked up All right, little. give away yes. your secrets. Come on. A, a big reason they were taken out had to do with the end of the War of Rage. The Garu have won. And now what? Now now we have all these different, mm-hmm. we're using the word tribes, because we're still the, the fledgling Garu nation. And we've won, and it, maybe things are getting rocky. Like, these guys are getting a little loud about this, and over here we've got a problem. Well, what we need is another enemy. So, <laughs> we, we got everyone who was openly fighting with us. But, you know, the Urkama were kind of shady. And they kept some secrets, and they kept some fetishes, and there's that worm connection. We should unify and destroy them, because they were clearly secretly the bad guy all along. So they're they, going to get guarded. They, they got guarded. <laughs> <They were, laughs> and it was the, uh, the Belai in particular that, that first suggested 86 in Nirakama. Really? Yeah. Screw them. It'll, keep up, it'll make <laughs> us stronger. It was very much... We need to take the focus off us, get everyone to focus on that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if, if we have a, a new enemy to crush, we won't infight, and, and this Garu nation can become stronger and not fall apart. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and we tried to offer quite a few potential catalysts for, you know, what would spur aggression or at least create distrust and hostility between the Garu and the Urkama. And the nice thing is, it could be any number of things or just one thing, or in some situations, there may not even be a need for that much provocation because we are talking about creatures that are perpetually, you know, fighting off this all-consuming rage. When you run out of enemies to fight and there's someone there that you're even remotely negatively predisposed to, I don't imagine it takes a whole bunch. No, sometimes you just got to smash a thing. Yeah. <laughs> he said hi to me wrong. He wasn't offended enough. <laughs> In some cases, it might have just been as simple as Belai going, hey, what about those guys? You know what? You're right. They are over there. Wouldn't be a hard sell. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's, it was very easy to, I guess, manipulate that idea and everyone else's yeah. head. Yeah, like couldn't couldn't have possibly have been a hard sell because <laughs> of all that mistrust. And that went around. Mm-hmm. That wasn't just a Garu thing. Everyone knew. That they couldn't be trusted. Yeah. You know, what it's say in the book is it was it was a widely believed thing that if you saw Intercama yep. just flying around, then you just secrets. assumed that he had been spying on you all day or whatever. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> like, he knows all of your shit. You just saw one. He knows all of your shit. Yep. I he could just be going to the store. There's already a certain amount of risk inherent in I'm going to be up to stuff and I can't let anyone know. But when it's everyone knows I'm up to stuff that I won't let them know about. That is a very precarious position to be in. Exactly. But I think something uh, also in this makes, I think, a great transition into what they do. (laughs) And those threats in the beyond is that once they were gone, everyone's been kind of screwed ever since. Because, like, by and large, the fair didn't even understand what the Urkama were doing, let alone how to take that job up. Well, I mean, they were keeping it from them. They were keeping the secret. Sure, but like... They didn't understand that that secret was kind of important. Know. I don't think they knew what <laughs> their job was. And they were keeping it from them. 
Well, that's the thing. It's like no one has been able to really replace that. <laughs> and there's been repercussions. <laughs> like everyone's screwed. Yeah. I mean, we look at guys free pass, we'd be fine without them. It'd at least be quieter. <laughs> <laughs> Solid point. <laughs> Some tribes might have fallen. They did help a lot. Well, but you could make the argument that Gaia Bounder, comma, or Kamenzatz, as it may have worked out anyway, would have been able to fill that void. Fair. But defending Gaia from from the nightmare gods and, and the things in the reaches of the Deep Umbra, and I think this is our transition here, mm-hmm. that is more than significant. Mm-hmm. And the loss of that is is a big deal. Before we get there, I just have to say, I feel the the germ of a short story that I think I'm going to need to give you a credit on because I love the idea of where have all the Corex gone of like this, the, this tribe that previously depended on the Corex, but thought they were annoying as all hell and wish they would go away. And now there aren't any in that region. And now we get to see, Hey, are they really okay without them? I'm into it and I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool idea. Where have all the Corex gone? Oh, now he's singing. At least he's not right. And you know, and they're, and they're probably like, you know, just off screen in the trees going, yeah, sucks, doesn't it? Who's kidding now? Except, like, I envision that out of, like, with, like, Gilbert Gottfried's voice. Oh. <laughs> so, like, everyone can hear him in the tree. <laughs> and you know that Korax is rocking Big Bird. <laughs> just think of Iago. Whose war form is silly now, you asshole? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> Just yelling everything. That's what every correct should sound like. That's true. I, yes, this should. Like I do my impression, but we're micro, there's microphones here. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah, hurt my ears. Right? No. Well, we'd all go deaf. We'll do it later. You can't do that without screaming. No. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there is no Gilbert Godfrey whisper. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that guy Soft, dulcet tones. <laughs> His default setting is 12. <laughs> I have a possible 5. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so the Nightmare Gods. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Brandon, why don't you uh, take us away on there? So we've been talking about how the Urkama were essentially charged with protecting us from the awful things on the other side of the gauntlet that lurk in the Deep Umbra. And there's all there's all sorts of things that can be, you can use the Urkama to, you know, have a Lovecraftian tentacled horror versus a werebat. That actually sounds pretty cool. Uh, but yes, it does. One of the, one of the specific ones that we highlight is these creatures that we call the nightmare gods. And we were talking about how in modern times, the dynamic is, you know, your primary antagonist with werewolf, is the worm, but even society itself with the presence of the delirium and silver, there's a lot of things stacked against them. In Savage Age, in a lot of ways, while they're still not guaranteed to live very long just because of how harsh it is, they are kind of top of the food chain in a lot of ways. And if anything, the wild is the the thing to worry about. We were looking at, you know, what is something that could stand against these guys if you wanted to go a route other than Pharaoh versus Pharaoh. And thematically, one of the lines we keep coming back to is, you know, in prehistoric times, you're huddled by the firelight 
trying to survive worrying about what what's out there in the dark what's past that firelight so in this case we've uh, run with it literally the nightmare gods are deep umbral entities that came through the gauntlet an indeterminate amount of time ago there we deliberately offer a few different options as to what they might be because in universe the garu don't know this is a time when the corrupted worm isn't even fully understood you know they're just now kind of running into fomori and kind of getting an understanding of what the corrupted worm entails but these things are these are our eldritch horrors and one of the inspirations for any changeling fans out there the thalane now i'm not officially saying that the nightmare gods are the thalane because we don't formally do crossover splats but i was I was reading uh, some of C20 and talked about how the Thalane, Thalane, for anyone that doesn't know, those are nightmare fae, essentially, um, embodiments of fear. And it talks about how, supposedly, in prehistoric times, the Thalane walked the earth as gods. And I remember reading that and thinking, but, but we're in prehistoric times and, 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 and it's our guys that walk the earth as gods. Well, that, that can't coexist. That was kind of the genesis of what would become the nightmare gods. They're these primordial fear entities. And so we get to look at what scares a pharaoh. For a, for a mortal, for an ordinary human, everything is scary. You're caught up in this, this war of these god beasts that you don't understand. What scares those god beasts? What are the things that would give them pause and uh, make them shudder? And in fact, one of the things that we have done is, you know, in Savage Age, there really isn't a delirium. That comes later as a result of the Savage Age. The nightmare gods actually induce their own version of delirium within Pharaoh, which has allowed them to maintain this sort of mythical status where most Pharaoh don't even know that they exist. They can influence the world or interact, and then the pharaoh will rationalize it or forget about it entirely. So it allows them to exist as supposed gods of the world alongside our pharaoh without it necessarily spilling into full-blown warfare until, you know, maybe the gatekeepers that were regulating their numbers are suddenly eliminated because they had secrets and fetishes. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Do you still call it delirium? I don't think we give it a formal name. I think I compare it to the delirium. Okay. I wrote the entry, but I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't remember my exact wording. I, we differentiate it from delirium, I believe, but I don't think it got its own name. But mechanically speaking, it is delirium, but for the Pharaoh. Because true. as an antagonist, wanted to give you the options that a nightmare god can absolutely be a super famori. It can be this or it can be played like a Nexus crawler, you know, just this beefy reality warping horror that will stab you and bite you. Or it can also be this more insidious thing where they, they will hide inside of different creatures and essentially be the devil on the shoulder. They will influence them into behaviors that would cause terror, cause corruption, because ultimately they they feed off of the presence of fear, which is why many of them don't opt for just running around and destroying things because 
what you don't know or what you're not sure of is always scary. So in a lot of ways, the Urkama, while they were the biggest threat to the nightmare gods, they kind of tilled the soil for their arrival because by not sharing with the Garu Nation and other pharaoh what they were up to, there was a tremendous amount of fear being put into the world, and, well, we see how that ends up. Not saying that that was a deliberate, you know, by design plot on the Nightmare God's part, because I, I personally like the idea that, you know, it was just the Arkama's own hubris and the Garu's own rage that led to it. I don't necessarily want to imply that there's a puppet master orchestrating it all so much as the Nightmare Gods are the, the result, because once that once the Arkama are gone or scattered, there's no one to guard that door anymore, and now we kind of set the stage for Savage Gage's next big bad, which is this antagonist that the Pharaoh aren't prepared for, because the people that knew about it, well, they're dead now, and they didn't want to share. What's, I mean, yes. That's a <laughs> shit ton to unpack there. Yeah, that is a lot to unpack. Sorry, I, so I, I rambled a bit. Let's, uh, let, let's drop this back. You know, we start with the Nightmare Gods. Yeah, I, I think this, this kind of Eldritch Horror thing, you know, this, this darkness that feeds and exudes terror is, is a pretty fantastic idea. And I love that it's nebulous enough to give a storyteller room to play. And, uh, and it's written in, in the Deep Umber section in the appendix of, of the Akama book. To stat a thing out, to give too much information, to turn on the light, removes that darkness, that fear of the unknown. And it's something we also touched on in our, our Spiral series. Yes. Mm-hmm. Point of fact. So, fun coincidence. So, to not define them too greatly, I think, works really well. I definitely appreciate that, the potential of that, and how you get, you can use that as antagonists into in, a greater scale in Savage Age. And, and it's, it's true. Um, the, the actual wording, you do not name it. You do not call it the delirium. It is, is a delirium-like effect. Hmm. Is the quote I to my notes? <laughs> like I'm not a huge fan of that idea of the delirium, and but I think that comes back to the concept of, of player control. No, it makes sense. And I mean, it's not a one for one, but like if I'm playing a video game, right? Nothing pisses me off more than something that removes my ability to control the character. Mm-hmm. You're playing like an RPG or something, and your character's feared, and he's running around like an idiot. It's like I'm not, I'm not doing that, or or to be stunned or something. You know? When you get jo- or, you know, juggled in a fighting game and there's nothing you can do but right. yeah, sit like, there and take it. Yeah, the control, you're holding a controller, but the control is taken from you. And it's infuriating. Like, let me play. <laughs> you know, so I think there's a little bit Being of that. frozen in place. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not the same thing. Whatever. And yeah, the, the fact that you, you have this threat that's unknown, first of all. You know, we understand we, Worm Weaver and Wild. We understand the triad to that. To the extent that we can, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? But but these these nightmare gods, they're beyond it. And again, we look back to the you know guy is always in danger. So how is she the top dog? Thing that we talked about earlier. Your comma are keeping that danger away, and sometimes shit gets through the cracks. And the funny thing is, is you know they come from just out there in the deep umbra, and then the connection with the ethereal realm, where where they're coming from there too, because this was a place where. The Urkama's like, well, this is, this is the place, this is our chosen battlefield. We can do this here. And, you know, I look at that, right, and I think of in a modern day, well, that's what we would probably be, we would probably consider the worm reaches of the ethereal realm. So as this time has gone on, 
the nightmare gods, I don't want to say have become one with the worm, but there's there's this level of alliance there. Holy shit. One of the things that I personally like is a, a lot of uh, people tell us that they have used Savage Age material not strictly for purely Savage Age campaigns, but they'll use it for like these flashback scenes for past lives or Macaulay Nisus or it'll be interspersed with a with a modern game, which I think is is so cool. I, I anyone that is able to pull off you know multiple time periods in a game or like flashback scenes, I I like stuff like that structurally. But given how much of a threat we present these guys as, I like the story potential of well, how did they stop them? Since we don't hear about them in modern times, or is the answer they didn't stop them and we just don't know where they are anymore. We just lost our ability to see them and track them and fight them. So they're one of those, I think they transition really well to a potential modern times werewolf story because we're, you're in the same boat. What modern werewolf knows what a nightmare god is? Right. And I, think awesome. it, and I think it's a little A, a little B. Like the Nexus crawlers and, and the Nexus crawlers, Jesus Christ, these things come up so often <laughs> and from so many different angles. Uh-huh. But they're they, so mysterious. Exactly. But they come up here, they come up in Arcama. Not a lot, but mm-hmm. they're mentioned. Perhaps I read it wrong, but it was intimated that they are linked with, with the Nightmare Gods. And again, because they're so alien, they're so foreign, they're extremely powerful and they don't make sense. You see that correlation. Mm-hmm. Very much. And, and you, we talk about how, you know, they're not all, in terms of the Nightmare Gods, I mean, all Hulk, Hulk smashy or whatever much like how the worm works in mysterious ways. And it's and I make these comparisons, but it's, it's important to know that there are tales of, of uh, the Nightmare Gods that predate the corruption of the worm. You look at the girl who thought the Nightmare Gods were a consequence of the weaver going mad, uh, something mm-hmm. like a, a wild weaver kind of unison mm-hmm. creature that came from the breaking of the, of, of the weaver's brain. That was a lot. That's how you're going with it, though. The Macaulay suggests that they might be related to the giant asteroid that ended the Age of Kings. Wow. The Nightmare Gods are similar to the Fae, but they're, it's clear they're not Arcadian-born. So it's connected, it's similar to a lot of things, but it's none of them. Hmm. And, and I think part or of that is could it be... all of them? Depending was, on what I was going to say, as is, time went on, like as mentioned, who knows what a Nightmare God is today, but it doesn't mean they're not known by another name, or they're below the surface, and it can be both. And that's one of the reasons that I think they're so fun because, I mean, yes, it, it is, it's very World of Darkness to not have definitive answers to things. And that's absolutely something we emphasize in Savage Age, particularly with the motif of oral tradition where stories change as they get passed down from one teller to another. But just in like running games, I have found that, for example, you know, if you're throwing up a, a monster or an antagonist at your players, in my experience, I have gotten such better reactions and role play if I never actually name what the creature is, if I just describe it in its actions, because if you're playing with people that are familiar with the books of, you know, whatever game you're running, the moment you say, well, it's this, then for a lot of folks, the tension and the horror is gone, unless it's just a super strong thing, because then it's just that thing on page 42. Even if that thing on page 42 says it's spooky and mysterious, for a lot of folks, once you've quantified it and oh this is exactly what this is this is exactly how this works the spooky is gone so i think being 
ambiguous about that not only lets them have hopefully some element of mystique and horror, but also gives people some options. You know, like you said, you don't necessarily like the delirium notion, but you can structure them another way or have a nightmare god that works differently or has a different modus operandi. I'm, I'm really big on player options, so I, I hope that we achieve that. No, I think you did, and I think to back up your point here about um, naming a thing, oh, I think a great example is the Scrag. <laughs> the Scrag, it, 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 sometimes you got to remind people, that, that is a, that's a murder spirit. And if you're telling a story, hopefully you're, you're worried about Scrags, but let's, guys, you're not worried about Scrags, are you? No, not really. See, like I say it, and they're <laughs> like, oh, it's just some Scrags. Yeah, but the first time we right the heard, first time fine because he didn't know any better. Uh-huh. But see, we've named it. You know what it is and what it's capable of. So when I go, there's a pack of scrags rushing to you in the distance, as opposed to if I were to just describe them. If we didn't hear scrags before, it's still terrifying. But but you do. That's what I'm saying, Daddy. You yeah. know what a scrag is. Mm-hmm. So yet to name it takes a lot of that fear away. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just scrags. And that shouldn't be a sentiment. Mm. But there you go. But I, I see it's, you know, we're back, we're back in, we're back in the man up here, you know, to put a name on the thing weakens it a little. Hmm. Yeah, I'd much rather hear the description. Don't give me the name. Paul's uh, interpretation of some nightmare gods was just absolutely blew me away. I was, I was so thrilled with that. I don't remember if it's in or comma proper. Everybody that bought, buys or comma, there's a, there's a supplemental file that you get with it for free, which I think is, I think it's just called Nightmare Gods, and it's two pieces of uh, short fiction written by uh, Max Peoples that are actually from the perspective of a Nightmare God, and I believe that's where Paul's art features, and it is, it is so cool and so creepy. Hmm. That was one where he just really got to frolic, I think. You can tell he had fun with it. Well, one of the, one of the pieces I liked in in regards to like the Nightmare Gods is with the section around the Soul Blight, which, if you have the book, you can check that out. You'll know what I'm talking about. But also, it's a great way to segue to that. But uh, the the Blight, and I mean, it was one of the most powerful of the unending of the Nightmare Gods, a generational threat to Gaia. And it was fought on multiple occasions by the Arcana. Right. This this was one of the bigger problems. A hell of a sentence, mm. by the way. <laughs> generational threat. You know, it was something that, that the Urkama kept pushing back, kept pushing back, kept pushing back, eventually it gets through. More rage, and there's less and less Urkama happening. Right, and it's a tough job. Not everyone makes it. But eventually it discovers humans, and like, infects them. And this is one of these subtler things we talked about. It is, you know, they would, they would infect people, and it would just kind of drain who they were. Yeah. And at that point, all they want to do is infect others and grow together like, like, a, like a hive mind. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, like they should have been. <laughs> <laughs> Might have survived. And, and I mean, obviously, it's, it's a huge problem because now they're infecting the humans and they're, and they're, making, they're going into human settlements and becoming mm-hmm. the thing that people gravitate to. It's like, we're going to make you need us. Yeah. So we can work toward our goals, and now you're you're, you're involved now. You in in some us. ways, we we've approached them almost like a contagion. They're self perpetuating. Fear being an infectious thing. I, I I feel like that works, and it's one of those that 
it adds some dimensions to the threat where you don't necessarily know, is this something that we can just do claw ag damage enough that it goes away? And, and I mean, exactly. And, you know, eventually, and I, I thought this was interesting too, is that once the Urkama realized the source of this, the sickness, if you will, this soul infection, for lack of a better term, was the result of this, of, of the blight, shit got real. And they went to the pharaoh that they could and asked for help legitimately. Not through information trading or secret trading or using leverage or like in the War of Rage where they would trick the Garu into ambushes or into mm-hmm. doing some of their job for them because they needed the extra muscle. They straight up went to Farah and said, this is the situation and we need your help. Yeah. That's a pretty serious threat then. <laughs> right? And of course, this still bites them in the ass. Well, of course it does. Because while they take care of the, uh, the threat, you the infection them? still remained. Oh, really? Yeah. Like zombies? I, I didn't see them as zombies. Okay. What, would, what would be the best way to explain that, Brandon? See, the, the thing that's coming into my head, and this actually wasn't on my part an intentional callback to the Thalane, but in, in Changeling where someone has just, uh, I forget what they're called, but it, when they've succumbed to banality and awfulness and they just become this this sort of husk of what they were before. Like they are a living person, but the spark is gone. Can't remember what those are called, but I, I feel like that would kind of work here. Yeah, like they're, they're kind of soulless, but they're not, they're not zombies. They have intelligence, I would say. Robotic? Empty. Yeah. I, I think husk would be a good... Yeah. But a person isn't there anymore. The individuality, the spark of life. It, I can see soulless. Yeah, it, it's all in service to this greater thing on the other side. And I, I think that's a good point to bring up how the Urkama often deal with these things. Because uh, in situations like that or in situations where the, where the infection, for lack of a better term, has hit critical mass, we have something called the Ride of Hollow Sound. Yes. And th- this one was a lot of fun because I was given a lot of thought, you know, other than pack tactics and swarming and ambushing and doing the things that a nocturnal predator would do, which are very important because, you know, the nightmare gods, one of their big advantages is we hide in the dark and the Arkama, like, that's nice, we see in the dark. But the nightmare gods feed and are sustained by fear. So one of the approaches that the Arkama have, particularly as things grow more desperate and their numbers start to dwindle, is the Ride of Hollow Sound, which they use on themselves, generally before a mission, to completely eliminate the capacity for fear from one of their own. So, on the Mm. one hand, it makes them into a very effective strike force because now the Nightmare God is being starved and denied an advantage that it just automatically assumes it's going to have. And, you know, it makes them very, the whereabouts very ferocious and dangerous. But there's also the downside that a creature without the capacity for fear doesn't have the same capacity for self-preservation or, you know, maybe even tactical thinking in some respects. So you, a lot of times the right means, yes, we've created the ultimate nightmare god hunting strike force. And then other times you create a bunch of, Whereabats that for a whole moon phase don't have a sense of self-preservation and you wind up losing bodies and 
tribe mates when you otherwise wouldn't have. Very much a glass cannon squad at that point. Yeah, it's it's the it was the emergency you know hail mary measure that in some cases worked really well and in some cases didn't. But also politically, it had blowback because we presented as the ride of hollow sound. There's two versions of it. There's the one I just talked about and a larger scale one that I'll get to. But we presented as rumors of this right start getting around to other Farah, but they don't have the full context of what the nightmare gods are and what the Arkama do. So what the Farah or, or what some Farah start seeing this as is, wait, they're turning themselves into these fearless warrior monsters. Clearly they must be marshalling against us. Clearly this is, this is so they can match us. They're plotting against us to the outsider. This looks like the Arkama are preparing for war with them because they don't, know what they're using it for and well the Arkama aren't going to tell them so it's another potential story angle that we put in for you know why might the Arkama be at odds with the Garu Nation or this other Farah tribe well and it's, it's great you bring that up because again it's another example of the Arkama kind of shooting themselves in the foot <laughs> you know I, I go back to the, the Soul Blade issue you know where they got the fair together and they were straight with them finally <laughs> and yeah, they, like they who believed him at that point. And, and if you, I guess, if you want to look at it this way, is you know, if the tentacle of the of the night, you know, this the soul blade is infecting these humans. Like, assume it's actually touching, sure, right? Mm-hmm. Just for just for the visual, yeah. Well, team teaming up with the uh, with the Pharah, they cut that tentacle. They sent that tentacle back to the other side of the gauntlet where it's fucking supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing: is that the Pharah handled the bulk of the uh, the fighting in the realm and in the penumbra. And so they took the bulk of the casualties. Now, in the Deep Umbra, mm-hmm. the Urkama were doing their thing. They were fighting the good fight, and they took a lot of casualties, too. But nobody knows about it. Right. They didn't talk about it. They didn't sing songs to the dead. They didn't brag about or mourn about or complain about the number of people they lost. They just did their jobs. <laughs> so in the view of the Pharaoh who were there, boots on ground, watching their brothers and sisters die by, like, Three Urkama got splinters. Mm-hmm. It looked a lot like they just got screwed. So again, it's see if I help you again. Yeah. yeah. You came to me straight and then you threw all of our people in the in the pyre while you just sat back and like three of you got hurt. Great. Shooting yourselves in the foot. <laughs> could could have just said, no, there's a couple zeros on top of that. They were just in the deep umbra. <laughs> it, it was still they were still afraid to tell them. It's it's their nature. They're aloof and they're secretive, and you know, and they don't fun. want shit like just happen coming again, right? And like, and again, the less you people here in the realm know, just knowing about some of this shit is enough to be infected. Mm-hmm. So what's the fear in you? We can't tell you some of this. <laughs> yeah. So was, in, in a lot of ways, it's a it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't. There's. There are reasons for why they handled it the way they did, but at the same time, you can't exactly say that, well, that was the right call. Right, and I think that's um, the, that should have been the subtitle of the book. <laughs> comma, damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> oh, and um, That might be the subtitle the su- of today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> on the subject of the, the right of hollow sound, um, the default one, or the standard one, is a level, uh, is a level three right. Well, we have a level five right, and if if the level three is the break glass in emergency, the level five is the nuclear option. Yes. And okay, we present this one as 
literally a legendary thing. Like within our lore, there's only like a dozen instances in all of the history. Yep, yeah, in all of the history of it ever even being used. It's a version that one, it requires several um, powerful Urkama together, which becomes increasingly harder as the years go on. They don't, there's not always a bunch of them in one place. And well, eventually there's not a whole bunch of them alive in one place, but it allows them to enact the right of hollow sound on extremely large areas, like the size of an entire village. And the practical function of this is essentially scorching the earth to stop an infection. It would be done in a case where a village has fallen so just hopelessly under the influence of nightmare god presence that it's not as simple as, you know, finding out where the one is hiding or killing the leader that he's infected the most. Like the influence has been there maybe even for several generations. It's so deep-seated. We can't really do anything other than maybe just kill the whole village. So this, as an alternative, functionally turns off an entire village's capacity for fear for the duration of a moon phase. Now, in practical terms, what that lets them do is, one, it denies the nightmare gods a resource, but also it may force them to manifest. If you've got some that have been hiding in the shadows, feasting, for lack of a better term, and suddenly there is no fear whatsoever, then essentially the, the genie pops out of the bottle and then they can deal with it in, you know, shall we say, more traditional means. Where this gets them is, one, a lot of times this right, you, you may wind up with the same result as if you uh, just wiped out the whole village because functionally speaking, you now have an entire populace that for a moon phase doesn't have a fear response in an era where your fear response is probably the only thing keeping you from getting eaten. So it was, it was an option that didn't always necessarily have the result that they wanted it to have, even though it's immensely powerful. But the other issue is that as legends of this get around, the other Pharah, again, lacking a concept of the nightmare gods for context, they look at that as, oh my God, they found a way to make an entire army of Urkama fearless at once. They, they are stockpiling weapons of war, essentially. They have found a way to make it where dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of Urkama, if ever there could be that many in one place, just won't be afraid anymore. So, Universal soldier. So, <laughs> ironically, they cause a lot of fear with this, uh, you know, fear nullifying right. <laughs> and again, uh -huh. damned if you do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I could see how that would be a bloody disaster. Speaking of bloody disasters, uh -huh. the, uh, I hope I pronounce her, the Sanguinia, their blood magic. Is that mm -hmm. how you say it, Brayden? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will be perfectly honest with you, I have not heard it out loud. But that's what I'd go with. <laughs> Perfect. The way It looks like it's the way it's spelled, so I'm going to go with that. <laughs> say it again. Because English is hard. Sanguinia. Mm -hmm. Sanguinia, sure. That's how I'd say it. They're blood magic, and uh, swims in the darkness, actually. The guy that was spoken about in the book found uh, the ways of uh, doing certain rituals with blood grants better abilities. This reminds me of the uh, the blood rituals they were doing, which started well, War of Rage 2. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's that correlation. And now this was in the, the later era. The later, it was almost towards the end of their time, pretty much. And, and this actually 
transverses into the Kamatas. And now I think I think it bears mentioning, at least on the Arkama side of things before that, is that as they were getting weaker, they, they realized that some of the stuff that they were fighting was too strong to defeat, so they started sealing it away. Mm-hmm. Not unlike the Bane Tenders. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. But they, this was their like their last ditch effort. They were training. They they found this blood magic to try to help them survive as long as possible. Blood magic always has its downside. Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, with a name like blood magic. Yeah, it, it'd be weird if it didn't. Right, it would be weird if it didn't. Blood <laughs> magic, the safe option. <laughs> <laughs> it's not nuclear, not at all. As the Tremere go, yes, yeah. <laughs> so the more of these rituals and powers are that are used, the spiritual rot slowly grows and consumes the soul of the user. Jesus. And as more rot takes hold, the uh, the darker the results of the blood magic become. So the more you use it, yeah. the darker it gets. And then after a while, your mind succumbs to the spirit. And they call it the unending spirit. So one of those dark spirits from the Dark Umbra, you're, you're slowly, because that's obviously how they found it, was the unending spirit from the Dark Umbra. This hmm. badass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sucks, but it's cool as hell. That's because they have it to activate any of the powers is to invite the possession of the unending spirit. So he just slowly possesses you as you use more and more blood magic. There's there's just a level of hardcore to the Arcama. (laughs) (laughs) They fought tooth and nail till the end, using every option they could, man. Right? Yeah, like I said, it just reminds me of the blood rituals they were doing that created, essentially, the War of Rage 2. Well, and again, and to link you that the Shadow Lords were predominantly responsible for that, <laughs> and how much like the Shadow Lords the Arkama were to begin with. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a, it's another case of, again, how how fortunate we are as a team in the way things line up, because I never had any discussions with Andy as far as, like, overarching theme of, okay, we want to present these guys as hardcore as fuck, and then they ultimately destroy themselves sometimes literally by virtue of being that hardcore we never like formally hashed that out but i seem like everybody was kind of on that same page and picked up that ball and ran with it in different ways and i that, that's something that makes me really happy that's awesome because i mean the Urkamo were badasses they were these hardcore super servants of gaia and in a lot of ways precisely because of that they wind up destroying themselves you know, it's, it's very grander of them, which we all know is super fucking metal. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Well, that's, that's always been one of the, I, I don't know if, if Grant has shared it or not, but since the beginning, one of the uh, internal mandates when making Savage Age is, you know, we want you to be able to tell that gritty survivalist story of huddling by the firelight and fearing the dark. And we also want you to be able to take your favorite heavy metal album cover and bring it to life. I like that. <laughs> that was a good idea. Right. <laughs> well, that's, um, it, it's gotten a little close for us here. So let's get to something that's kind of important. Brandon, what the hell are you working on? Well, I'll tell you. First off, I want to say that, um, again, so much of this is Andy's baby. And obviously I'm biased, but I, I think it's cool as hell. So much of the stuff he put together. And he is working on the Ripex book as well as uh, Tribe Book Core, which is our Wear Synapsids. And I think folks are going to really, really like what he's got coming. Um, as far as uh, what I'm working on, we just released uh, last week 
believe, uh, Tales of the Savage Age, our first uh, short fiction anthology. And it's got a number of folks from the Savage Age team, as well as a lot of uh, new talents that we're lucky enough to be able to give a platform to so they can kind of play in our sandbox and tell stories. If you're any kind of fan of stuff on the vault, you'll see some names you recognize. And we've got 18 stories, including poems and uh, one actual epic edda. But also, every story has a companion item that it inspires, uh, either a talon, a fetish, or a rite that you can actually use in your werewolf game. I was actually so, going to interject that, That's which I think is excellent, by the way. Not only uh, we have these stories from the perspectives of different pharaoh that might give you an idea of, well, what is uh, Korax like in the Savage Age? Or how might uh, you know this pharaoh and this pharaoh coexist? What's an example of that? Not only do we try to give you some fun examples of that in these stories, we give you some actual things to use in your game. So I think folks will really enjoy that. Please check it out. Uh, Storytellersvault.com, Tales of the Savage Age. Probably the next release is going to, I imagine it'll be the Player's Guide, which uh, Case and Snow has been working on, and that's going to go into detail on all of our Farah, and it's going to have a lot of fun options for everybody. Also, uh, quick backtrack tales, we also included um, all the Gaian mandates for uh, the different Farah in here, so if you want to, if you need that one sentence deal of, hey, what are these guys about, we tell you. So... Not only are there some fun stories in there, we try to have some practical stuff for your games, too. I've seen a little bit of it. I hope I was allowed to say that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, How no. And uh, no, that's true. The practical application of stuff, you know, like the main character of this story or the fetish is used, it's actually written up later in the book. Oh, that's cool. So you can take that directly. Oh, that's awesome. Right. Like, I thought that was such a great, like, it was, it was a brilliant addition. So and uh, the Nightmare Gods do feature um, in Tales of the Savage Age. So if you if you enjoy what we've been talking about tonight, there's more to come, and there's more to come with the Nightmare Gods. There's a lot of fun stuff in the pipeline there. And if you didn't enjoy it, just try harder because you yeah. did it wrong. <laughs> I was going to say, shame on you. <laughs> shame on you because Savage Age is awesome. Right. Well, you know what? The Nightmare Gods come free with the book. Look at it that way. Very Can't go wrong with that one. <laughs> See? That's a bonus. No one's <laughs> forcing them to read. No, not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, look out Tales of the Savage Age. Look out for the uh, the Ikumi books. Of course, the existing lineup is already there at the Storyteller's Vault. You know how to get there, and if you don't, there's a link on our front page. <laughs> yes. So, ragecrossinternet.com, go there, hit the Storyteller's Vault, pick up all the Savage Age. Pick it up twice. You're going to like it. Give it to some friends. That's right. They'll like it, too. Shameless self-plug, but I... I kind of handle the bulk of our marketing over on Twitter and a lot of stuff on Facebook. I'm Brandon M. Stewart on Twitter, and a lot of times you can, I'll post previews of what we're working on. You can see works in progress, um, and a lot of pretty Paul Way art from Savage Age and uh, our other projects like Hammer and Stake. So, yeah, come look at the pretty Paul Way art on my Twitter. There we go. <laughs> I definitely enjoy it every time I see it. You, you, heard, it, you heard it direct. And if I post one that's not the highest resolution possible, you get to uh, watch Paul Way yell at me. And that's, that's awesome, too. 
<laughs> I have seen some well, of those I, comments. I, I forget. I, sometimes I'll just, if I need to do a plug, I'll just snatch one off the internet, and it's not always the best copy. And then I'll inevitably get that Paul Way response of, "Why, why do you hate me? What why do I, you hate me? Or you know, me? Godfather, what have I done to make you treat me with such disrespect?" <laughs> I've seen those comments. It's funny. So <laughs> behind the scenes, there, it's awesome. <laughs> Well, thank you all very much for having me. This was a lot of fun, even if I don't get a toaster. But uh, <laughs> Get on a couple more times. You yeah, might, you might just, get in there. Right? Right? We'd love to have you back. If, lo- if you want to have me back, I'd love to come back. But regardless, this has been a lot of fun. And I appreciate you guys and really love the show. Well, awesome. you know, we, the, the feeling's mutual. You know, we're huge fans of Weaponize Inc. And you guys have all been just great. We've kind of lucked out with you guys here. So, you know, thank you for being on the show. And I'm, we'd love to have you back. We'll yeah, sounds find good. a place. Please come back. Yeah. <laughs> but in the meantime, on behalf of everyone here at Scratch a Wolf Studio, we want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Keep your claws sharp. You're in this level. We'll see you.